Nashville Mortgage. It's good to have your ear. This week on Mortgage & Company. Two decades in the making, the intimate and revealing story of two American families to be profiled next week on Frontline. As America went from recession to recovery to economic boom, both families have struggled to find their place in the new economy. I'm joined by journalists Barbara Miner and Barbara Garson. This deindustrialization, the growing disparity, just didn't, didn't happen as, as some sort of natural event like the rain falling from the sky, yes. but it, it really is the result of policy decisions. We have to raise wages. Yes. Now, that, to say it is not to do it, um, because 40 years of, of concentrated effort have gone on to lowering wages. Not only have we abandoned Americans as workers, we are now abandoning them as consumers. Thanks for joining us. Twenty-two years ago, we began to document the story of two working families in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, families whose breadwinners had lost good-paying factory jobs. Little did we know when we began in 1991 that this would become the defining story of our times. There was hardly anything more American than the belief that if you work hard, you will be able to make a living and build a better life for yourself and your children. But these two families, the Stanleys and the Newmans, like millions of others who thought they were pursuing the American dream, discovered that something had gone terribly wrong. Even as they found other jobs, went through retraining, worked anytime and overtime, they were on a downward slope, working harder and longer than ever for less pay and fewer benefits. Yet they fought courageously to hold on to their homes, school their kids, and keep them sliding into poverty. Over the years, we have followed their struggle and told their stories in a series of documentaries. Beginning Tuesday, July 9th, on air and online, you can see the latest chapter, a report for the PBS series Frontline, titled Two American Families. Right now in this broadcast, I want to introduce you to the Newman and Stanley families as we first met them. Here's the excerpt from the last installment of the story as told in the year 2000. Tony and I have known each other since we were probably about two years old. His mother and my mother went to school together, Pulaski High School. And our grandparents, when our parents were younger, you know, they played cards. So they were pretty good friends. I don't know, we just started seeing each other, you know, spending a lot of time in each other's houses, and he just asked me out, so I said, okay. <laughs> we were crazy about each other. We had to spend a lot of time together, you know, and I could just picture myself spending the rest of my life with him. Our expectations were, I thought, you know, you find the man that you like and get married and have a family and get a house, a little white picket fence, you know, all those little fairy tale type things. Um, some of it came true, but some of it, as far as the bumpy roads, I didn't expect either. You know, I knew they weren't going to be all peaches and cream, but you don't think of all the bad things when you're younger. In the summer of 1991, we came to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to examine wrenching changes in the American economy. Had to adjust to the global economy that is now facing us all. The old line industrial jobs, with their salaries, benefits, and pension plans, were disappearing. We reported on two families who were living through these changes. The Newmans were trying to make ends meet after Tony, the father, lost his good-paying manufacturing job. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask you to bless this food that we prepared. The Stanleys were also living on the edge after both parents lost their factory jobs. I cannot spend what I don't have coming in. I have learned that. I'm spending more and it's not coming in, and it hurts. We began in 1991 with portraits of each family. What do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, I probably want to be a man of the law. So, uh, and then, over the next 10 years, we return to document the fortunes of the Stanleys and Newmans. The nation's unemployment rate rose to 6.5% in February. As the country went from recession to recovery to economic boom, 
both families would struggle to find their place in the new economy. Years ago, if you wanted a small engine, you got a Briggs & Stratton. Manufacturing firms like Briggs & Stratton made Milwaukee, Wisconsin one of the great industrial cities of the heartland. For years, its assembly lines provided an abundance of jobs. Depending on which line you're on, by the time the motor gets to you, it's going to be heavy. Here's Jackie Stanley. You pull the gun and press down, and you give it all you got, twist it back, hook it, and send it on. And if you're seconds, seconds late, you hear somebody down the line yelling, motors, motors, what's wrong with you down there? Blue-collar jobs like these made a good life possible for workers and their families. But factory jobs were melting away. By 1991, Briggs and Stratton alone had eliminated some 4,000 in Milwaukee. Among the newly unemployed were Tony Newman and Jackie Stanley. When the doors of Briggs closed on us and uh, they handed us our pink slips, I knew that I'm out here. It's sink or swim. Jackie's husband, Claude, had worked for another large manufacturer, A.O. Smith. His job disappeared, too. He found another one waterproofing basements for less than $7 an hour. You got to look at it on the real side. I cannot live like I was making $20 an hour. OK, that money's not there. So you might as well get in your mind, it's not there no more. So OK, bring yourself down. How'd your children take it when you came home and said you'd lost the job over at A.O. Smith? Or did you tell them? Well, I told them. I told them. And they was in private school then. They were? Yeah. I had to pull them out of private school. Keith Stanley. I think the hardest time is when uh, you have to worry about uh, coming home. Like like I said, always coming home. And then there, uh, there's a uh, bill on the door saying the water's cut off. Or there's a, um, the, the guy just calls saying you can cut off the phone or the electricity's off. And you have to wait for a couple of days until mom and dad can um, get enough money to put it back on. Terry Newman. I was working factory. He was working factory when we were dating. When we got married, we had started a family right away, so he still worked factory, and I stayed home. And he made pretty good money when we were first married, you know, for a young couple with one little one on the way. We'll grab a couple and, and crack them in the pan. I don't know. We had a good time with one child, so we had another one, and there was Adam. Um, you know, and then I got pregnant with Carissa in 86, and he had lost his job. Then he got hired at Briggs, and we thought, okay, this is a very stable job. You know, we can start saving, and we bought the house. One more. How much is your mortgage your mom? I believe it's like 820. Yeah, 820 or something Have like that. Have you been able to make all the payments? No, I'm, we're behind. And today the mortgage company called me again. Again? Yes. What do they say? I didn't answer them right now because I wanted to talk to Tony and wasn't home. So I wanted to talk to him. Mr. Carl is the same guy who I talked to before. Really? I did send a $1,000 check in um, probably a few weeks back, but it, the check was sent back to me with a letter stating we will not accept a partial payment. I don't really think of that as a partial payment. I think of that as a basic payment and a good gesture on trying to get um, caught up. Right now we're going through a hard time. My husband's out of work. He went to school, and he's looking for a job. And I'm basically just trying to buy a little time so we can get on our feet again, you know, so we can get caught up. I would think that this is just going to be a temporary thing, not a permanent thing, and I really don't want to lose my house. Or are you just trying to tell me that you have to foreclose on the house if I don't have that full amount? You would recommend it. Is he putting this on paper? I want to know, is he putting this on paper? Dear? Dear? Would you like to talk to him? The Newman's oldest son, Daniel, was just about to start third grade when we met him. Daniel was doing very well before Tony was laid off. 
but with tensions around the house, he kind of withdrew a little bit. I'm not going to drop it off in no box, and I want a receipt for it. Children do notice the tension. They do notice these things. They're not stupid. They can hear mom and dad getting upset. It upsets them. They've made comments like, mom, let's, let's sell the, the bookshelf. They've got little baseball cards. Mom, I'll sell these. And, and that hurts because they're, they're willing to sell their baseball cards to help their parents out. So what are you going to do? Keep on trying. Yeah. You can't stop trying. I've applied over at grocery stores, hardware stores. There's McDonald's. parties, <laughs> Super America, Pizza Hut, Walmart, Sam's. Most of them will not pay $6 an hour. They're all less than $6 an hour. Little did they know, I need to live also. Thank you. Have a nice day. After her layoff, Jackie Stanley began selling real estate on commission. Hi, Joe. Yeah, this is Jacqueline Stanley from Homestead. It's just like anything else. It's really unsure. OK, I just got in, and it says ASAP. You only get excited when you're sitting at the closing and have the check in your hand. You never get over exuberant, and I'm learning that every day. Nicole Stanley. Mom's real estate is tough on her. I've seen her try to will and deal deals. They seem so good, and at the last minute, they fall apart. The listing is for September. It's already October. And that falling apart is our mortgage. That falling apart is the car notes. And to someone else, it might not seem important that they decide not to buy the house. But for us, it's a matter of not life and death, but it's a matter of light and gas. And that's scary. Workers were told they needed to retrain in order to get good paying jobs. So Tony took courses in pneumatics and hydraulics and passed with perfect scores. But his new skills didn't yield a new job. See you later. He had to pick up work where he could. It's Real frustrating not being able to support my family the way I used to. It's really frustrating. I have a lot of decent qualities that I could use as skills in the labor force, but nobody's really willing to give me a chance. And if they are, they're not willing to pay a decent wage for it. With $1,300 borrowed from a relative, Terry purchased beauty products that she tried to resell door to door. For someone with no sales experience, it was risky. But for Terry, it made more sense than taking a full-time job. You can't afford to work, you know, getting $6 an hour and expect to pay for childcare, you know, $1.50 an hour per child. I have three children. So I says, I'm going to have to find something else that I can do. And then when someone introduced me to this business, I decided to say, hey, you know, that's worth my while. I can, I can make it, you know. Again, Keith Stanley. You talk to your friends, they always say, well, I'm going doing this this summer. Well, how about you? And you like, well, um, I'm doing uh, working. That's all you can say right now is I'm working. And they always ask me, why you work? Why don't you go out and have fun like the rest of the kids do? I say, oh, you can't. This, you just can't do it. You have to go out there and help your mom and dad. Keith Stanley and his twin brothers, Claude Jr. and Claude L started a business in 91. They called it the Three Sons Lawn Care Service. On a good week, we can bring in $200. That's big money to us. It's hard work, but if you look in the refrigerator and you don't see nothing, and you know you got $5 in your pocket, you might want to go out and get some milk or some eggs or something. Here's Claude L. Stanley. I see my mom um, on the phone talking uh, to the bill collectors, asking them when they would take the mortgage company, when they were about to take her house, she was pleading with the uh, mortgage company. She asked the, the bill collectors to keep the light and sometimes the gas on. And uh, that makes me want to do more, a lot more. The Stanley's mostly African-American neighborhood had been traditionally supported by factory jobs. But with those jobs gone, housing values fell, and so did real estate commissions. 
Jackie wanted to sell in other neighborhoods, but ran into resistance. <laughs> okay. Here's Jackie's boss, Bill Berland. People of color are really have a much more difficult time in our business making a living than white people. It may be a situation where she may call for a showing and not get the courtesy of a callback. Maybe her client that she takes into a mortgage lender has uh, a much more difficult time, even if their credit is good, getting a mortgage. All right, fax it to me. I can't sell suburbs. I can't sell okay, the most affluent areas here. Okay, and that hurts. But they'll call me for Central City. Times are so tough that Terry Newman has to go to a food pantry for groceries. Holding in there, okay? Mm -hmm. I don't like having to go and ask and say I have no food in the house. Can you help me out? It makes me feel very uncomfortable. I'd rather be on the giving side than the receiving. I don't know if you're going to be using all of these or not, Terry. They have peanut butter, flour. You can take what you like. We do a lot of baking, and the kids eat a lot of peanut butter. And we have some pork here. I understand that if you put it over noodles or rice, and maybe add a little onion, because it's quite palatable. A little bit or a lot? A little bit. Normally, I make good meals. The meat and the vegetables and salads and all the fixings. You know, it's not a large amount, but they're good, well-balanced meals. And now that I can't make well-balanced meals, I mean, that's, it gets to the point where you sit there and think, oh, God, what am I going to make for dinner tonight? You know, and it's just emotionally exhausting. Again, Tony Newman. I've been getting very angry lately. Uh, I've been losing my temper quite a bit. I've tried doing things. Uh, I work in a garage on woodworking things when I get angry, and that helps once in a while. I just, I'm having a hard time dealing with this. Dan. What? Pardon? Ten inches. Ten inches? Mm -hmm. That sounds almost right, but I think it should be about 11. A couple times, Tony would get up so, and, and just leave the house, and Adam's crying. I mean, he's, he sat there and cried. How come my dad's upset and why did he leave the house? I said, Adam, I said, Daddy's just having a very hard time right now. He's not working. We'll be okay. We'll find something. We'll, we'll, we'll find something. We'll work this out. You know, we'll be okay. Thank you, hallelujah. Yes, Lord, we thank you this morning. Lord, we thank you how you provide for us, how you made ways out of nowhere this week. Lord, we thank you this morning. On Sundays, Claude Stanley served his church as a lay minister. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, and thank you, Lord, for your kindness, Lord. The rest of the week, he was still on his hands and knees waterproofing basements. By 1993, he had been promoted to foreman, head of the work crew. This job with your money is cutting high. In fact, the job you're making fourteen dollars an hour, this job you're cutting that in half. You only make maybe about seven. Yeah, you might get some bonuses here and there, but incentives, but ain't that great? Now I'm putting the long hours in. You're getting money, but it's not that much. But you're getting long hours. But you know, you and you get home, you're tired. Yeah, yeah, we tired. You know, and uh, you said, what the use? Uh, uh, you know, what's why I keep struggling? Why I keep going? But you, you gotta say I'm gonna make it. I'm gonna I'm gonna make it. But the door got to open up somewhere. It's got to open up somewhere. I'm not signing none of this. We kept up with our two families throughout the decade. More coffee for Daddy. Tony Newman found a job in a non-union shop, making ten dollars an hour, working from three in the afternoon until eleven at night. Still behind on the mortgage. He worked exhausting overtime hours and rarely saw the family. Terry had gone to work for an armored car company, working up to 10 hours a day for 9.05 an hour. It has very good insurance benefits, which my husband doesn't have. 
he gets more money and less benefits, and I've got less money and better benefits. So hopefully between the two of us. It kind of works out. Yeah. Tony kept working lots of overtime until he collapsed with pneumonia. He missed 10 days of pay, and the insurance wouldn't cover all the bills. Just with the mortgage, we got, well, three months behind. And it will take us two years to get to pay that back because they tack on the interest and penalty charges and whatever else. You know, so that three months takes two years. That, that's a long time. So whatever extra money we have, we send it because we want to make sure that in the next year we have it paid off so they don't take the house. Claude Stanley got sick too, and the medical calls put them $30,000 further in debt. It will be rough, you know. It'll, it'll hit us financially, but um, all we do is just depend on, we, do, you know, we depend on the Lord to make a way for us, but we ain't going to stop living, you know. We got to keep moving, keep going. But going where? The Newmans and the Stanleys and thousands like them were caught in the powerful undertow of a merciless economy and a changing city. Once an industrial power, where workers made enough to support their families, Milwaukee now epitomized America's great divergence, the ever-widening gap between the super-rich and everyone else. Poverty and crime filled the space left by disappearing jobs. No one was immune. Again, Terry Newman. I'm taking Adam over to his friend's house because some kids have been causing some problems and threatening their lives. So I don't want them walking alone because the minute they get them alone, they got a group of kids driving around in vehicles that are stalking them, that have threatened to kill them, beat them up, hurt them bad. And the Standys would never forget the urgent call that came one day from Claudel's school. They had uh, called me that Claudel was going on life support because the child choked my son until he stopped breathing. He came from behind me and started choking me and having some wrestling hold, and so I couldn't breathe. And so I <coughs> dropped to ground, and last thing I remember was um, teachers coming and praying. By the time I had gotten there, they had his chest exposed, and they were telling me that Dale was now had stopped breathing, that's all they could tell me. They said they can't revive Claudel. And when I got there, I saw the teacher on her knees praying Hail Mary, full of grace, over my son. All I could say was, Dale remembered Jesus. You know, you, you hear about violence, you don't think it's gonna hit your kids, you know. You find out your kids getting choked at school and uh, near death, you know, and and you're on your job and you get a phone call saying, come quick, your kid is in the, it's on his way to the hospital. And you, you know, it's, and it's like right on your front doorstep now. We will leave the story of the Stanleys and the Newmans there for now. You can see what has happened since then in the Frontline Report to American Families. It begins Tuesday, July 9th, on air and online. Barbara Miner has been following the decline of her hometown for nearly 40 years. Earlier this year, the American Civil Liberties Union of Wisconsin presented her its Lifetime Achievement Award for, quote, her tireless fight in support of public schools. Her newest book, Lessons from the Heartland, received the Studs and Ida Turkle Award from the publisher New Press. Playwright and author Barbara Garson has published a series of books about the changing lives of working Americans and the human price of inequality. Her latest, just published, is this one, Down the Up Escalator, How the 99% Live in the Great Recession. Welcome to you both. Thank, Thank you, Bill. What struck me as we were reporting over almost 20 years is that the two families in that film did play by the book, the American Dream storybook, and yet it hasn't worked for them. What does their experience say about the American reality today? Well, I think part of what their experience shows is a fundamental lack of collective responsibility because everything was put 
on these individuals to get ahead. And we've sort of lost that sense of we're all in this together. I mean, in Milwaukee, the, Milwaukee, the city, is, is devastated in many ways. But the metropolitan region is not. The amount of federal funding and state funding has just consistently, year after year after year, decreased in terms of any sort of you know, state or federal aid to the city. And yet it remains the sort of cultural lifeblood. You know, you have people driving in from the suburbs you know, to go to the opera, to go to the ballet, to go to the symphony. But they come in on the expressway and then they leave and go back to their homes. You know, we have a city of Milwaukee that has some of the highest poverty in the country and counties just to the west of Milwaukee that have some of the most affluent in the country. So what you see in Milwaukee is that microcosm of just just heartbreaking disparity. That's what I found about the country in your book, Down the Up Escalator, that their capitalism today has enabled the people at the top to get fabulously wealthy, but the vast majority of the 99% are just still struggling. Is Milwaukee a microcosm of the country? Yes, but particularly Milwaukee has lost so much industry. Mm -hmm. But it's a microcosm in the sense that what we thought was an industrial problem. Remember, we were told in the 80s, if you prepare for a, um, a data-manipulating future, right. you know, oh, well, there's a few of these, uh, you know, uh, dinosaur working-class people. We may not be able to replace them. We may have to just give them charity. But the rest of us are going to move ahead in the post-industrial society. But everything that you showed in Milwaukee is happening to white-collar and even professional jobs. I've talked to people, remember my little pink slip club, four uh, New Yorkers who found out through their church that they were all unemployed, an insurance adjuster, someone who did graphics for textbooks, um, an editor on a trade journal. And what was interesting to me, I followed them for about a year and a half, they're all still unemployed except for small part-time jobs. But not only won't they get the jobs back again, but the jobs won't be the same. Namely, the person who worked full-time for the publishing company that was putting out the textbooks, his replacements will be entrepreneurs, if you like. In other words, people that the, like him, and maybe including him, that the company calls in and gives uh, a few hours work here and a few hours work here for just the moments that they're needed with no benefits. Um, so. It's white-collared and professional jobs are being downgraded just the way the blue-collar jobs were in Milwaukee. And that means not only lower pay, of course, but the same insecurity. Well, and, and in Milwaukee, sometimes it's, it's almost like a perfect storm of problems. You have the deindustrialization. Which means the jobs are being shipped abroad. The jobs are gone, right? Yeah. Family-sustaining jobs that in the 50s made Milwaukee the, the machine shop of the world. You know, it's, it's now with this uh, creaking cog in the rust belt. So, so we have deindustrialization, which tore out the economic heart. You know, when I look at M Milwaukee, there's, there's always sort of a, a confluence of issues. And at a certain era, certain issues may dominate. For example, in the 1960s, our most sustained civil rights protests were around open housing and opposing housing discrimination. And, but there's also jobs, what I consider jobs, housing, and schools as the three essential issues in Milwaukee that at one point or another, they all work together to either sort of lessen inequality or sort of, sort of bolster that inequality. Your book introduces us to people you've been following in your own work. Tell my viewers briefly about Chuck and Michael father oh, and yes. son in Evansville, Indiana. Well, they represent um, what's happened to work over the last 40 years. The son looks at the father, and he's lived with him all these years, and he says, my dad is such a right-on guy. He always describes him as Republican and religious and right-on. He, he looks at his father, and he says, I'm not going to work that way for my, the way my father did. And he describes that his father is now uh, five years from retirement, and the company has put him on a night shift, and he's working 10 hours, 12 hours, 14 hours, because as a manager, he doesn't get 
extra pay. Now, he knows they're not being good to him, but he doesn't think like the kid, they've done this to me and they're doing this to everybody. He says about his home that's underwater, well, you know, some people buy a house and sell it and make money. That wasn't us. The son, looking at his father, describing his life, gave me the title for my book, Down the Up Escalator. He described the struggle to stay in the same place. The son lives like a hippie. He's the new not hippies, you, you, told, you call right. them the new hippies. They're, right. They're just not investing in the work the way his oh, father he's did. He's not going to struggle that way for a non-existent job for a company that will not take care of him in his old age. And they were a little different than us as hippies, though. We dropped out consciously. And we could drop back in very easily if we gave up altogether. We could always get a little job anywhere for a little money that we needed to travel to another city or something. These kids, for those what we called nothing kind of jobs, they actually have to put in tens, and they were talking with each other, how many applications you put in for a, for a um, uh, pizza parlor job? Well, 50, 100, you put them in, you don't get an answer unless they need you, they don't tell you the job is filled. So those little jobs that we could always take if we needed, they are the real jobs that they would have to struggle for, and they're not going to struggle. Your book, uh, Barbara Garson, nails down the facts. Since the 1970s, real hourly wages have stagnated. Yet between 1971 and 2007, productivity increased by 99%, while hourly wages rose by only 4%. 4% over 36 years. In other words, workers were producing more. Their productivity actually rose, you say, 25 times more than their pay. And now, over half of every new dollar, 58 cents of every new dollar income generated went to the top 1%. What does that tell us about the direction of the country? Well, actually, those are the statistics that caused this recession. I mean, if people are producing 100% more and they're getting paid the same amount, they, they don't have the money to buy back what they produced. And this is what we call a, a consumer economy. It doesn't mean it's not a castigating us for what we buy or don't buy. It just means we sell 70% of what we produce to each other. Now, if productivity is up and wages are the same, the people who make, the, the, the owners of the companies are making more and more money. It's not just that they have money to spend. They put the money in the bank and in and the brokerage accounts and expect to invest them. Meanwhile, this 99% has got money to spend on all that's produced. So it's as if their employers turned around and said to them, well, instead of paying you more, I'll lend you the money to buy what you produce. Now, that is a pretty silly idea. Actually, bankers are not stupider than the rest of us. They may not be smarter, but they're not stupider. But they had this money accumulating, accumulating, exerts an enormous pressure. A bank can't keep its money in the bank. It had to lend it. So it started lending to people who can't pay back. I mean, if you don't have $10 this year, how are you going to pay back $15 next year with interest if your wages aren't going up? Still, they lent the money to buy cars, they lent the money to buy houses, but you can't keep lending people money if they don't have a raising income or any way of paying it back. And that's going on again. It's going on in Milwaukee, as you saw from the two families. They take on a lot of debt, they work two jobs, their children are alone at home. Does that resonate with you, what you know about the people you see out there? Well, actually, one of the things that struck me about the documentary, particularly with the African-American family, is by Milwaukee standards, they are doing so amazingly well. What do you mean by Milwaukee standards? Be a little more okay. specific for us. Okay. One in eight African-American men of working age in Wisconsin, which is basically Milwaukee, is in jail. Fifty percent of African-American men of working age do not have a job. Uh, the statistics about high school dropouts, the statistics about violence, crime, incarceration, those, the, the Stanleys 
they had a stable family. They were able to get their kids through schools. Their kids did not end up in jail. As tragic as the story of that family, it's, it's almost like it was a, a sort of a proud moment of a success story. So what does it mean to a community when half of the black men who are of the right age have no work? What does it mean practically? Well, first of all, you have to look at some of the reasons why they don't have jobs. And, you know, part of the thing is the, the job creation, by and large, is not in the city of Milwaukee right now. It's in the suburban areas. So if you don't have a car and there's a significant portion of people in Milwaukee who don't have a valid driver's license or don't have a car, there's no way to get to those jobs. And you have a, a public education system that's being abandoned, and education is a way forward. You have incarceration. You have a declining investment in public infrastructure. So you have, again, this perfect storm where it's like, you know, you're in the city of Milwaukee, you're an African-American man, and it's almost like you see the jobs of the promised land in the suburbs, but you can't get there. You notice that Keith Stanley got a job with the city. Exactly, and that's what's, that what was so heartbreaking about the attack on the public sector by the Republican governor and legislature. In governor Scott Walker. Governor Scott Walker. Yeah, we'll put a name to it. Governor <laughs> Scott Walker. Because, you know, after deindustrialization, the public sector was one of the avenues for a middle-class life for the African-American community in Milwaukee. I mean, when you look at the percentages of African-Americans employed in the city, the county, the schools, and it wasn't just, you know, wages and stability, but they had health insurance. And so when the attack came down on the public sector, it was like, you know, what else are you going to take away from us? You know, it, we've got so little left. As you make clear in Down the Up Escalator and in much else that you've done, much of this inequality was engineered, politically engineered. It came about because um, the power of money to write the laws and purchase the policies that the wealthy want. The first book I wrote was uh, I had a chapter at the Lordstown Assembly Line plant in Where? In, in Southern Ohio. Oh yeah. And um, at that plant, they had brought young people in because they had created the most fast assembly line in the world, 101 cars oh, yeah, an hour. Right. And they thought they could get young people to work faster than they could get older people to work and also not complain the way uh, UAW members of an older vintage would. But these young people actually went on strike about the speed of the line. And when I went down there, auto workers were talking about humanizing the job. Some said we ought to work even faster and have it more automated because then we could have more leisure. They knew that productivity was increasing and they, we thought it was ours to decide what we're going to do with all this wealth we were creating. But sometime in the 70s, someone else looked in and said, enough of this, we're going to do something about it. And they started by moving a lot of the jobs overseas. And it seems like bringing down wages has been so systematic over the last 40 years. And that's why I sort of sometimes ask, where were we when this happened? This deindustrialization, the growing disparity, it just didn't, didn't happen as, as some sort of natural event like the rain falling from the sky, yes. but it, it really is the result of policy decisions. So we have this sort of, well, just make the right choices, just go start your own business, just, you know, you know use your you know, bootstraps and bring yourself up. That has not been proven to work. What are some of the possible solutions to this great inequality, to this growing joblessness, to the fact that you know, the poorest 47% of Americans, almost half, have no wealth. We have to raise wages. Yes. Now, that, I, to say it is not to do it, um, because 40 years of, uh, of concentrated effort have gone on to lowering wages, whether it was breaking unions or creating laws that allowed you to make more money overseas than you, you, know, than you might have otherwise, pay no taxes, et cetera. So we just have to raise wages not only for, and for the sake of the people who are getting the low wages, but as I try to indicate, if we don't raise wages, we're well on our way to the next debt crisis. Um, uh, but as Barbara says, um, 
to do that, we obviously have to do it collectively. I mean, if I knew... You mean politically. When you say well, collectively, yes. you're talking Democratically, of politically, collectively. The money is too concentrated. We've got to take it back and, and, and divide it out again differently. Well, it's Gosh. interesting because in Wisconsin, we see sort of two futures. And I think at the one hand, you know, improve wages and very specifically raise the minimum wage. I mean, we can't tell a private industry, you know, you can't pass a law that says private industry must pay blah, blah, blah. But you can say the minimum wage should be raised to X. And within the city of Milwaukee, we've had different movements over the years for city contracts that would have family sustaining wages, which would be higher than the minimum wage. So there are different political collective decisions in terms of wages. But I also think it's really important, and one of the lessons from Wisconsin is to defend what we have. Because sometimes in Milwaukee, it's sort of like, well, it's so bad, it can't get worse. And I go, well, yeah, actually, it could get worse. And so when I see public education being abandoned, I mean, public education is a fundamental democratic public institution. I mean, it is written into the Wisconsin State Constitution that children have the right to a free and public education. I mean, it's, it's an, I mean, I wish there were Democrat, I mean, there were a constitutional right to jobs and health care and housing. There's not. But there is a constitutional right to public education in Wisconsin. And that institution is being abandoned. What brought that about? Part of it was, it, it, it is complicated. Part of it was, we're the home of the Bradley Foundation. And that foundation put a lot of money into making Wisconsin sort of a, a guinea pig for lack of a better term, for both welfare reform and vouchers, which are basically public tax dollars going to private schools. That's one reason. You know, other, another reason is when institutions are allowed to deteriorate, public support drops. And so there was a lot of dissatisfaction with the public schools. And this was seen as, well, the public schools are pretty bad. It can't get worse, so let's give it a try. Even though some of the people behind that movement had a much broader agenda. So there's, there's no easy explanation for the political dynamics, although it was at a time, again, when the Republicans were in control of the state legislature. So it's a very much a Republican, fundamentally a, a Republican initiative that's part of a broader agenda, I believe, of, of lack of support for uh, the common good. Is Governor Scott Common Walker good. Oh, that's such a wonderful word to hear. What do you mean by it? that we were talking about the whole country in some way. You know what's very strange to me now? I mean, we would, if we were fighting for wages, we would be also fighting to restore the whole country to economic health. And it's very odd to me that you, we, it, in the 60s, it used to seem that the left wing were the people who said, ah, oh, imperialism is doomed, and they were anti-American, you know, because being anti-war. And now it seems as though, though wealthy people do know that Keynesianism works, that you do have to redistribute money from time to time. You have to stimulate the economy. Right. right. But it, I mean, that's, I didn't think I'd have to teach that. I'm a socialist, not a Keynesian, you know. But, and, and, but they do know it. But they seem as if they've come to a point of saying, take the money and run. This economy isn't going to recover. This country is second rate. Let's us take our money, put it overseas. Not only have we abandoned Americans as workers, we are now abandoning them as consumers. Mm. They can't re-stimulate a consumer economy. We'll sell in China. And you know, if you're not a worker, and you're not a consumer, and you don't have a income from investments, if your capitalist class can't use you in some way, you're not a worker, you're not a consumer, you're, you're kind of a nothing. And most of us are struggling just not to fall into that completely nothing condition. Like the Newmans and the right. Stanleys. But a recent survey by the Pew Research Center finds that the majority of Americans are increasingly worried about inequality between, you know, the gap between the rich and the poor, but they're hesitant for the government to do anything about it. Well, I mean, we've watched the government over 40 years do something about it, namely increase the inequality. So but you mentioned why the we don't think our government is our government, that's what it reflects. This is an area where racial politics are essential to bring into the discussion. You know, there's no easy answers, but I mean, I think Reagan was clearly the master 
of using race and the Chicago welfare queen to really divide people who otherwise would be united, should be united. And so it's become easy to appeal to sort of white workers to say, well, you're not getting ahead because those blacks are getting all those, you know, those freeloading poor people are getting all these benefits. Or now in Wisconsin, well, you know, these public sector workers are taking all your money and, you know, earning, you know, living high on the hog. So I think, I think understanding and, and as uncomfortable as it often is forthrightly looking at the racial dynamics of these, you know, these complicated questions is really important because race is, is used to divide and to blame and to scapegoat. I just thought of another thing that made that documentary really work because it showed the wear and tear, not so much of lack of wealth, but insecurity, the problems of coping all the time, because that's what I noticed. The poor Americans that I wanted to show didn't look like Walker Evans photographs. Um, they were sitting in the front of a television. The famous depression. Yeah. They were sitting in front of a television. Um, they're eating. There is a kind of wealth. I'm not saying no one is starving. Unfortunately, that's the next step, or that's on the increase. But there is a kind of wealth. But, but, but when I saw in your documentary the actual worry over whether it was $100 or $1,000, how am I going to pay the next week and who am I going to not pay? And I noticed something else, which was when a family has no um, extra money, when, when they can only, when there's no disposable income, when they're not trying to decide should we buy a boat, should we buy a car, should we go buy a vacation, but it's only who should I put off paying and who should I pay, mm -hmm. it always falls back on the women. You prompt me to ask you about a recent story from Think Progress. Four in 10 mothers are either the sole or primary source of income for their families, according to Pew Research. And yet the trend is not necessarily due to women making more than their husbands. Nearly two thirds of this group of women workers are single mothers and just 37% are married and have a higher income than their spouses. What does it mean that increasingly families are are depending upon the income of a single mother for their support. You know, that's one of the disturbing things about the attack on some of the public sectors in Wisconsin, because it, it, a lot of it's teachers. And as everyone knows, teachers are primarily women. So some of the sort of gender and racial implications of the public sector and the, you know, teachers are now sort of, I guess teachers are to blame for they're the, they're the new scapegoat for everything that's wrong with education. And you're really talking about women, by and large. When the, when the recession started, the first, at the very beginning, the unemployed were primarily men. I mean, well, at least statistically, somewhat more men. Um, but then as it went on, it began to be uh, with the attack on education. And even where there was an attack with states just not having enough money to, to hire people, it did begun to be women. And as I often saw, uh, when you go to very poor countries overseas, you also see it, that when you're basically reduced to the level of scrounging, mm -hmm. then it becomes a women's job. So for instance, when I was in Evansville, I was looking for a particular individual, a man who had stayed in a welfare center uh, with his two little girls. And I was going to these different homeless shelters run by churches. And they said, well, our base population is the same. But they said, now lots and lots of women are coming in with their children to use our laundromats and to get a meal. Um, so it, it said to me that when things really hit rock bottom, it was the woman who had to scrounge around and figure out how to live in, in a very minimal situation. You know, when the, the story you note there that, you know, women are increasingly, you know, raising the families, being the primary breadwinners, I think it also raises the issue, you know, all the reasons why are complicated, but it underscores the absolute importance of ensuring that women's wages are on par with men's wages and that certain professions that are, you know, uh, that women, you know, you know, whether it's nursing or teaching, that they're not seen as somehow substandard professions that are not worthy of, of, of decent pay. We'll leave it there for now. Barbara Miner, Lessons from the Heartland. Barbara Garson, Down the Up Escalator. Thank you both for being with me. Thank you, Bill. Thank you.
Coming up on Moyers and Company, Baltimore Velasquez, the people's organizer, taking on the corporate giants. I told the Campbell Soup executives, I told the Heinz executives, I told the Dean Foods executives, I told the Mon Olive executive, the CEO, and I'm telling Reynolds America right now, you're a good man, but the system that you operate is wrong and is built on inequity, and you need to fix it because you have the power to do so. And uh, keep telling them and find ways to get their attention until they do something about it. One more reminder, you can see the Frontline Report to American Families on air and online beginning Tuesday, July 9th. At our website, BillMoyers.com, on July 10th, you'll have a chance to talk with the filmmakers Tom Cachado and Kathleen Hughes in a live web chat. That's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. Moyers & Company is produced by Public Affairs Television. You can learn more about the team that collaborates to produce the series at BillMoyers.com. Our radio producer is Helen Sulfan. Our editor is Paul Henry Desjardins. Funding is provided by Carnegie Corporation of New York, celebrating 100 years of philanthropy and committed to doing real and permanent good in the world. The Kohlberg Foundation, independent production fund with support from the Partridge Foundation, a John and Polly Guth charitable fund. The Clements Foundation, Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues. The Herb Alpert Foundation, supporting organizations whose mission is to promote compassion and creativity in our society. The Bernard and Audrey Rappaport Foundation. The John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information at macfound.org. Ann Gumowitz. The Betsy and Jesse Fink Foundation. The HKH Foundation. Barbara G. Fleischman. And by our sole corporate sponsor, Mutual of America. Designing customized individual and group retirement products. That's why we're your retirement company.